0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the InDefense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're going to talk about the plight of a palm tree named Pseudophoenix sargentii, or the Florida cherry palm. The plight of this tree has a lot to do with overdevelopment and poaching, and unfortunately, its numbers are not doing well in the wild. But thanks to people like my guest, there is hope for this species. Joining us from Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden is Jennifer Posley, and she's going to tell us all about what has happened to this palm and what 30 years of efforts in palm conservation can do to bring a species back from the brink. This is really inspiring, and it's one of those conservation success stories that we need to be shouting at the top of our lungs, but I don't want to steal any of her thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jennifer Posley. I hope you enjoy. (music) All right, Jennifer Posley. It is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work today. But first, let's start off with you. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Okay, well, thank you, Matt. It's really nice to meet you. Um, I've followed the podcast for a few years now. Oh, nice. I am the conservation program manager at Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden, which is in Miami, Florida, and I've I've actually worked at the garden for maybe 21 years at this point. Um, I've been the conservation program manager since Joyce Mashinsky left. And I I know you interviewed her a few years ago Um, and she's now the CPC center for plant conservation director, but we have a small team of staff that focuses on the rare plants of our region and um, conserving the germplasm of these rare species of Florida, Puerto Rico, and the U S Virgin islands.
0: That is excellent. I'm a huge fan of Fairchild and it's really great to talk to anyone that works there or has got their hands sort of in the process of tropical plant conservation as you all are doing. But where did this all begin for you? I mean, were you always a plant nut or did it just kind of start with nature and conservation and plants just happened to fall into your lap, so to speak?
1: I'd say more the latter. I was not one of those people that was born knowing what she wanted to do when she grew up. <laughs> um, I grew up in Michigan and we were in a, a kind of a rural area surrounded by woods and my sister and I would play outside all the time and you know go around look at mushrooms and things like that. <laughs> I do I do remember as a child getting over to, I think it was Nielsen's nursery in Ann Arbor. I mean it was in the middle of winter and we went back in there. My mom was buying something and I, we went to a greenhouse for the first time and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I like (laughs) it. You know, I was just warm and humid and um, seemed kind of more like me than the, the dry, cold Michigan air. Um, But I, I didn't study botany in college and I kind of graduated from Kalamazoo college in Michigan, not, quite knowing what I was going to do and actually came to plants kind of, kind of later in life. Nice. Uh, Yeah.
0: It's fun to hear those. I I think you share a very common thread among most of the guests I have on most don't start liking plants as a kid. I mean, some do, but most do not. Uh, And to find it kind of late is pretty par for the course.
1: Yeah, I guess we're, we're really not exposed to them very, very much like we are, um, I remember thinking maybe I'll be a marine biologist because that was <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, that was a thing I had heard of. Right. Um, but you don't really hear about people studying plants.
0: Yeah, you don't get to see the sea world equivalent of a trainer working with totally. a plant or a tree or something like that. That yeah. was always the big influence, at least where I grew up. But you know, you now work in tropical systems, and it sounds like you grew up in a very almost boreal system. <laughs> I would say uh-huh. temperate is being generous in a lot of places in Michigan, but how did that switch happen and you know from someone that's had a sort of similar desire to go from cold dry climates to warm humid climates was that a tough transition to make at least from a career perspective
1: Not at all no. <laughs> Um and I actually would I think it's fair to say I floundered a little bit after after college I had a few different jobs in in the restaurant business and in hmm. um I worked at a kid's environmental camp as a teacher, which I was just frankly not very good at. Um, <laughs> but I, I did a stint with AmeriCorps mm-hmm. in South Florida, and I was killing invasive plants, the Melaleuca tree oh, yeah. in Big Cypress National Preserve. And I just I just loved it. You know, I had, I had never done anything like that before. And I, I was like, I feel like I'm doing something that matters. And I, this is really interesting to me. And I kind of stuck around ever since ever since then.
0: That's awesome, and for those listening that kind of have similar experiences or at least have dabbled, you know, I was an Americorps person as well. Uh, you get a taste of sort of things. How did you go from realizing that that you enjoyed what you were doing and wanted to be part of that to actually kind of forging a career in plant conservation like you've you you have now?
1: I I think part of it is I've been really lucky, and I I didn't set out with a grand plan, but I. <laughs> I think I, I tried a lot of things, and when I tried something and I didn't like it, I would kind of back up and try a different direction, and uh, landed landed where I am. And I, after AmeriCorps, I started grad school at University of Florida, and I was in the agronomy department because the the Melaleuca control work led me to this group of people that was controlling invasive plants of upland natural areas. And they were based out of the agronomy department. It, it started as kind of crop weeds, but then there became this group of people who were focused on environmental weeds. And it really wasn't until I was in grad school at UF that I started to take botany classes and said, okay, agronomy and invasive plants is close to where I want to be, but botany is really it. That's really the thing. So <laughs> I took as many, as many classes in the botany department as they would let me. And you know, just kind of found what I wanted to do that way.
0: That's awesome. And so good for people to hear. I think a lot of times, especially for the younger generation, it's almost this assumption that you have to know going in, like at 18, I've decided that I'm going to do this. Never, hardly ever the case.
1: And you can, you can decide at 30 or or (laughs) or 40, you know, it's, it's okay. (laughs) Yeah.
0: This is not a race. (laughs) Yeah. Not a first, second, or third. It's just what you figure out doing. But, you know, you're in Florida. You're in an amazing part of Florida. You're in tropical Florida. And when it comes to Florida botany, there is no shortage of conservation issues. There are many plants that are under threat. And so, in your position, broadly speaking, you know, how do decisions get made? How do you start to target species or find yourself working on a project that could go long term, like for the reason, hint, hint, what we're talking about here today?
1: Um, I guess we have a few different things that are kind of steering our work. And one of the big ones is, is frankly funding. (laughs) Um, We're, we're largely grant-based. So we tend to work on what the funders are most interested in funding and having um, a status as a federally listed species. It tends to be a plant that we'll work on more because there's, there's more funding for it. But we also, we, and a lot of people in South Florida, we We have regional meetings and we strategize increasingly lately, we're trying to find species that are kind of slipping through the cracks that don't get that kind of funding. Mm. things that are are rare, but we don't have them in our seed banks and in our XC2 collections. so it's it's kind of two pronged, I guess, following the funding and then also some strategic planning, looking at what we're what we're missing.
0: Right on. And it's, uh, again, another really good perspective to have is, is there's a million different ways people can think about attacking this, but reality is what reality is at the end of the day. Uh, but the reason we connected is over a species that I had not previously ever heard of. And I'm really excited to have heard of it because it's a fascinating story. This amazing poem called Pseudophoenix Sargentii. Okay. How did that occur for you?
1: Well, when I I guess 21 years ago when I started working at Fairchild, <laughs> they already had a, a long-term relationship with the species. Fairchild has long specialized in palms, and it's one of the rarest palms in the area. And it was actually it was discovered pretty late. Um, I think I, I, I think 1860s is when it oh, was wow. first discovered, and it was it was always rare in Florida and nearly wiped out by development. It was one of the first species that Fairchild's conservation team was working with. Hmm. I think we kind of, we started around 1985, which was the year the Center for Plant Conservation formed and we were a founding member. Um, So that that year Fairchild really started to shift attention towards home, not just the tropics of over there, but also looking at our subtropical plants Hmm. here in South Florida. But soon after that, we were participating in surveys and collecting seeds from the last remaining populations of Pseudophenix, starting ex situ collections, and um, we still have the descendants of some of those trees at Fairchild today in our collections. We have quite a few of the palms on display at Fairchild, and not not just Pseudophenix sargentii, but some of the other members of the genus. Um, Hmm. There's Pseudophenix vinifera, which is similar, but it, it has a real fat trunk. Um, <laughs> and it's it's used it has been used to make a, a beverage, which that contributes towards its rarity because mm. people will tap into it to get the sap out of it, which is not good for the tree <laughs> and can <laughs> yeah. kill it.
0: Yikes. Uh but it is amazing to hear how long of a history the garden in general has had with this palm, but let's let's take a look at the species first and foremost before we talk about the years of work that have been put into this. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about development, but what is this palm and what might lend to its rarity on the landscape? Is this something where just kind of at the northern edge of its range and development didn't help? Or was it something that was more widespread and has just been contracted to a few small areas?
1: We are the northern extent of the species range. Um, It has a funny range, though. It's pretty common in the Bahamas and in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. But Outside of those core areas, it's quite rare. For example, in Puerto Rico, it's not found on the main island, but it's found on the little satellite island of Mona. Mm. It's in one island of the Lesser Antilles. It's just, it has a really funny range. So it it was always rare here in South Florida, and it was just almost poached to death. Oh, no. It, It was really. It was one of the few plants, like like orchids, that it, it actually poaching was really a major contribution to its rarity, because apparently there was this this craze shortly after it was discovered for the uh, for the royal palm, mm. and a lot of these estates down here, like the Edison Estate and the in Miami, we have the Deering Estate. People would would bring like barges full of royal palms from Cuba to put in front of their estates hmm. and this was being built the pseudo phoenix was being built as a dwarf royal palm so i think it was easy access and you could go you could go dig up a dwarf royal palm from the keys and you didn't have to go all the way to cuba and <laughs> um they were they were decimated not not long after discovery
0: Oh, that is awful to hear. I mean, it is a sad thing when any plant is on the brink, but to hear that it was just aesthetics really driving this, this desire to have a a cool plant on the landscape. But, you know, you go to Florida if you're not a palm aficionado or even a palm enjoyer on any level, you kind of like, ah, palm's a palm, a palm, right? And and wrong, uh, first and foremost, but, you know, Every species has its own niche. It's got its own life history. I mean, is this a tree that just regardless of the poaching just would not respond to disturbance? I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, is it slow growing? Is there aspects oh, of its, its biology yeah. that just really lend to that?
1: It's super slow growing. It's It's got to be one of the slowest growing palms oh. and... It can take 30 years for it to flower for the first time, which is just, (laughs) it's just ridiculous. You know, Um, you can't not have a long-term conservation program if you're interested in working with this species. Wow. And it's, it it seems to have a pretty narrow habitat niche. Like it, it, it's coastal and there aren't a lot of natural coastal areas left here in Florida. I don't know if this was always the case, but today the adults are susceptible to some sort of fungal pathogen and the the seedlings don't tend to survive we actually i was i read this long report from the national park service where um, some researchers spent almost a year doing camera traps and baits and trying to figure out what was eating (laughs) what was eating the seedlings of this tree and um it seemed like it was probably a combination of some not very exciting things like raccoons um, But uh, they never really had a smoking gun. But the, the seedlings don't tend to live very long.
0: Dang. So it's just like a double whammy. Slow to mature, slow growing, and then high infant mortality, I guess.
1: Yes. Yep. So there, w- when we're doing our monitoring, um, there's lots of teenagers out there. There's there's no babies and, and no adults, but there, there's lots and lots of the teenagers.
0: Uh-oh. <laughs> it's interesting to think about in the context of a plant because you hear, you know, on, a, on the superficial level, I hear a lot of chatter from non-plant folk about like, oh, you just grab some seeds, grow them up, plant them back out. Boom, we fixed the problem. But, you know, you mentioned that Fairchild kind of started this work in the 80s. And then you think about a plant that takes upwards of 30 years to flower for the first time. You know, some of their early work might just be hitting sexual maturity at this point. That's got to Constrain even the best efforts to to do something for this species.
1: For sure, it's it's difficult funding wise. You know, uh, our <laughs> many of our grants tend to be a year or at the most five years, Ugh. and it's it's also difficult because there is very few people that stick around for <laughs> for twenty or thirty years, and if there's staff turnover, it's hard to guarantee the next person's going to pick up the project. I, I will say though that one of the big reasons for success that we've had with the conservation of this species is one of the biologists in the keys has been sticking with this species wow. for 30 years. Wow. Um, her, her name's Janice and she works for the um, Florida park service and she's, she's been there from the beginning and she's still out there monitoring these trees. So it, it's really, huh. she's a big driving force behind it.
0: I mean, when people say, you know, what can one person do? Well, there you go. I mean, it's not every case where this is, you know, one person can make such a big difference, but it does sound like the the fate of the species owes a lot to Janice. So shout out, go Janice.
1: Yeah, go Janice,
0: yeah. <laughs> for sure. That's That's pretty remarkable. And so, you know, before we kind of jump into some of the specifics here, one of the things that I often hear from from the conservation group is like, well, why are we worrying about a species that's not globally endangered? You know, you mentioned we're on the edge of the range. It can be found on other islands. Like what to you as a conservation minded scientist and researcher and, and, you know, someone doing this professionally, what benefits do we have from saving populations on the edge of the range where they aren't necessarily uh, a big part of the flora, so to speak?
1: I, I, I get this question a lot, and I always have a hard time with it because to me, you know, I just think, how cool is that to have something on the edge of the range? You know, we have a lot of that in Florida. We have so many species where we they are at their southern extent, these temp, these temperate species from the continental US. And then we have these Caribbean um, and tropical species that are they're at their northern extent. So we tend to work with things that are maybe not listed, but there's very few of them in Florida. Hmm. Um, And I just think it's cool. It's, 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 you know, (laughs) we're on the edge of speciation. A lot of these, these things have morphological differences. Some of these types of plants start to look different and are described as different varieties or subspecies. And that's, that hasn't been the case with pseudophoenix in particular, but I mean, who's to say that if it had the habitat in the time, that that couldn't happen? Mm. And, and, you know, variety and diversity is just where it's at for, for a botanist. It's it's just, right. I, I would hate to see any of these species disappear. They're, they're what makes Florida so cool.
0: Totally. And when you think of, you know, the biodiversity of regions like Florida you know, that's those edge of range species are a big part of that because they're just squeaking in and and you can go and see things that you'd have to, you know, travel greater distances otherwise. But, you know, when you think about the edge of any species range, that's where the limits are. And you think of the genetic diversity of being able to tolerate things, conditions, so to speak, that are different than, say, the core range of a species. I mean, these are all things that have to factor in. So, yeah, I think it is a valiant and worthy effort to pursue. (laughs)
1: And they've made it, they've made it this far. They deserve to, they deserve to stay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. That's another great perspective. It just, the intrinsic value of a species hanging on, let's, let's give them a shot. Um, it's not fair that estate owners wanted to just pick them up and put them in their, their lawns. <laughs> but, you know, from the perspective of 30 plus years of conservation efforts, I mean, this isn't a single Faceted approach, I'm sure. So you've kind of hinted at monitoring and some of the ex situ collection work, but w- over those years, broadly speaking, what kind of efforts have been sort of volleyed towards Pseudophoenix in ensuring that it does have a future in Florida?
1: I don't know when it was added to our endangered species list, but that that does help. That affords it some legal protection and also diverts some funding toward it. So. The fact that it was added to our endangered species list was, was a big help over, over the years. Fairchild has been involved in surveys of the species throughout its range in the Caribbean. Mm. Um, I can't speak too much about that, but I know my predecessors have been to some of these remote islands and monitoring populations. We've done seed collecting from many of them Mm and seed germination tests. That's something we do kind of a lot of at Fairchild. It's pretty technical and can be kind of slow work, but figuring out how to germinate these species can be very important for their conservation. We've done molecular work looking at how this species is related to other pseudophenics. And I believe some of that work was done before my time or just around the time I arrived at Fairchild and Scott Zona, who used to oh, work right. at Fairchild, he wrote a, a paper on the, he, re, he wrote a paper on the revision of Pseudophoenix. And it's a really nice overview of the genus and how the different species are related to one another. And uh, yeah, we, we we also just have a lot of specimens on display at Fairchild of all different ages and sizes. So If you go to Google image and type in Pseudophoenix sargentii, chances are it's going to be one that's on display at Fairchild. (laughs) Um, There's lots of photos of of them in our collections.
0: I mean, that's really important, especially for people outside of Southern Florida, like me, that are not familiar with this, to go and look and say like, oh, there are actually confirmed pictures of confirmed species. I I am amazed and still to this day completely flabbergasted at a the amount of erroneous pictures of rare plants there are out there or just the complete lack of them i mean at best you get a scanned herbarium specimen so just having these species like photographs let alone them on display where the public can go and see something and and have a story attached to that thing to feel connected to it is is huge
1: I mean, if it's information coming out of a respected botanical garden, then you can usually (laughs) trust the idea of the plant in the pictures.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You always have to do the cross check of like, okay, now what is the address I found this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, from a ex situ conservation perspective, that is always fascinating to me because I don't think people look at botanical gardens in a larger sense as sort of these wonderful ex situ conservation tools. These are places where these species can be stored and monitored and you know kept in a way that's like they're pampered, right? And And not just left to the whims of whatever nature is going to do to it. And so from an ex situ collection perspective, I mean, it's also important to have a diversity of plants. So do a lot of the collections of seeds and stuff end up kind of tracked through that system of like, okay, we have X amount of plants, but we also know where every parent came from, that sort of thing.
1: It it depends on the species. Um, In the last few years, we've really tried to broaden our seed collections so that we have representatives of of many, many, many species in our seed bank and in our living collections. And and I'm just speaking about within my group, the native plant focus. And that's in part due to the influence of the Center for Plant Conservation. We're we're very interested in in banking, banking seeds. And uh, unfortunately, palms don't bank very well. So right. we have to, or they don't, they don't bank at all. Uh-huh. Um, no. Their seeds are, are incapable of long-term storage. So we have to have our palm collections as, as living trees. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have so many trees on display at Fairchild. And there's a, a nice network of botanic gardens in Florida and, and in the, the Caribbean that have pseudophoenix in their collections. And there is a, a paper that came out a couple of years ago that looked at the importance of XC two collections and how representative they were of wild genetics. And I think they, they only looked at a few species, but one of the ones they looked at was Pseudophoenix hmm. Sargentiae. And it was found that the germplasm in botanic gardens was very closely approximating the germplasm oh, wow. that's out there in the wild. It, it had captured it quite well. Um, and better than any of the other species that they looked at. I think the main author was Harbor, but I can send you a link Hoban. for that was one. Was it
0: Sean Hoban? Hoban, yeah, Hoben, okay. yes. Sounds like knew- Sean Hoban. Shout out to Sean. Yeah. Big fan of Sean's work. Sorry, right.
1: I, I butchered your name, Sean. <laughs> it's
0: okay. He's a very nice person. No, that's fantastic to know. And I mean, that's a big part of ex-situ conservation in the modern times, especially now that genetic technology is way more available to people is, is just representing that. And, I really feel for any garden taking on a species that don't bank well, because especially trees, you only have so much space to work with. And so you got to really be smart about how you approach this, how you appropriate areas of the garden, that sort of stuff. But aside from the slow growth and length of time it takes to reach maturity, is this a species that, you know, given a talented horticulturist uh, grows well in captivity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and it it has going for it that it's a really attractive palm. You know, everybody, (laughs) everybody loves pseudophoenix and you can find them in people's yards in Miami that they may have bought them at a Fairchild plant sale many years ago. Um, But they do quite well in cultivation and they're not that hard to grow. Hmm. So it it definitely it has a lot of strikes against it, but it has some things going for it, too, and that it's 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 attractive and
0: not too difficult to grow. Uh, In that context, it is kind of interesting to hear about rare plants making their way into plant sales, at least through an organization that is monitoring and understands what they're doing. I'm a big proponent, or at least I'm coming around to this idea that it needs to kind of go beyond the walls of botanical gardens to be effective for a lot of species. And it does sound like this might be a great case where monitored done right done through a channel like fairchild that's it's you know at least doing checks and balances not doing anything illicit uh this is a really great tool for plant conservation because a lot of people are dedicated growers have time space and money to afford just the attention needed to give these species what they want i mean is this really a a benefit overall to the species to have it kind of out there a little bit
1: i i think so too and i i i'm totally on the same side as you um Having more people get to experience some of these rare plants up close and personal can only be good for their conservation. I, I think may, there are perhaps a few um, exceptions of species that might hybridize with some non native, and we could have genetic swamping, or where um, having species out in cultivation could be bad for them. But in general, I'm a big proponent of having rare species available for people to plant in their yards or, you know, in their institutions or their estates if they want to. And usually it's not a legal issue as long as you have permission to collect. Um, Mm. And, and we, we usually do. Um, We sometimes have permission. I mean, we always have permission to collect. We don't always have permission to sell what we collect. Right. Um, So that can be just kind of, The boring work of looking into your paper, your your permit, and seeing if it restricted what happened to the plants, but what happens to the progeny of the plants you collect is not regulated.
0: Hmm. Interesting, and another great perspective. I don't think kind of gets talked about enough. But I'm I'm with you. I think if we do it right, we do it proper and ethically. This could be a very valuable tool for plant conservation in the long run, even if it's just to build up numbers that are sort of larger ex-situ collections but you know the other side of conservation is not just having these and safeguarding them and having collections sort of dispersed around different institutions and individuals you know for good species recovery you would hope that eventually this leads to reintroductions or attempts to get the species back out in the wild and I know through some hints and and some readings that that's been done to some extent for pseudophoenix right
1: yeah we have taken Seedlings that were grown from the wild from Biscayne National Park grew them up for decades and <laughs> and um, put them out. the The first introductions were in the early '90s in Biscayne National Park, and um, um, introductions in the Keys on Long Key that were led by by Janice, my buddy Janice. Nice. They've both been quite successful, depending, I guess, on your on your, on your measure of success. Elliot Key. <laughs> Elliott Key is the, is the key in Biscayne National Park where some of the outplantings were put and the rest were put on Long Key, which is a state park. And Elliott Key is only accessible by boat. Long Key, you can actually drive there. Hmm. On Elliott Key, we had something like 63 or 64 palms that were put out. Oh, and wow. I don't know how they did it. It was This was the early 90s. They did it in the summer because they wanted to do it in the rainy season because hmm. they, they knew they weren't going to be able to provide water. And Elliott Key is kind of hell on earth in the summer. It really is. <laughs> but they, in the substrate is solid limestone. Whoa. So they went out and they chipped holes in the limestone and planted some plants. The biggest ones, I think, were in five-gallon pots. Yikes. Um, and they got 63 plants out there. And today there are, I think, seven still alive. Um, okay. But two of them have, have flowered. Wow, Um, And if if all of them flower, you know, we're going to have some seedlings sneaking through to the next generation (laughs) from all that effort, and it's going to be worth it.
0: Yeah. And for anyone listening that hears the ratio there and goes, what the heck? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, when you think about a rare species that's already having trouble, but then even a non-rare species, the odds of any seedling making it is almost non-existent. And so even... You know, 11 percent of what you put out surviving—if that's at least matching what's going on in nature, anyway—that's a it remarkable is, yeah. success story for a rare plant. And and I think that needs to be emphasized because it can be too easy to go, oh, I wanted a hundred percent.
1: In um, Long Key, where where we have Janice, things have been monitored a little bit more closely, and they've also it hasn't just been one shot of introducing some plants in the early nineties and seeing what happens. She has done a couple waves of introduction there. So there, there are many more plants surviving there because some of them weren't planted all that long
0: ago. Nice. Well, I mean, once again, an emphasis on one person truly can make a difference in a big way, especially when it comes to sort of recruitment for a rare plant, but is there any I know funding and timing is tough, but is there any indication as to what might be hampering survival? I mean, have we learned lessons from these introductions or is it just kind of been when the funding and time is there, we try it and then hopefully we get back there to monitor it at some point in the future?
1: It's it's just, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult species. And I think we've had mortality from a whole bunch of different reasons. One of the big reasons has been trees, like oak trees and other big trees. Maybe not oak trees, but gumbo limbo trees, a big tree <laughs> we have down here, falling on the on the plant oh no. on the pseudophoenix. And if its apical bud is injured, it can't go on; it just mm, dies. Um, if some raccoon chews on the apical bud, the tree is going to die. There, there are just. It seems like there's a lot of things out there that this palm is susceptible to maybe more so than the average species
0: dang but it's the nature of the beast in so many ways literally and figuratively but you know the other level here is thinking of trees falling and damage to buds i mean unfortunately the keys in south florida in general are are right in the path of a lot of environmental disturbances that are only going to get more severe as climate change continues to rage on into the future i mean is that a is climate change a considerable concern for the future of the species? I mean, especially in Florida, let alone the rest of its distribution?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's a huge concern. It, it does seem like the pseudophoenix is somewhat adapted for disturbance in that hmm. um, in the past when hurricanes have come through Elliott Key, a lot of the adults have died. But then there's also been this mass germination of seedlings, mm-hmm. and and some of the the smaller plants that are there will suddenly you know put out tons of new growth. So a hurricane is is bad for the older plants, but it can be good for the population overall. Hmm. But sea level rise and storm surge, not so much. You know, it's it's salt water, and there's nowhere yeah. nowhere to go anymore. So. Because of sea level rise and and storm surge, we're especially conscious of trying to get some material off-site into places like Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden to uh, have a backup.
0: Totally. I mean, that's the whole point of dispersed ex-situ collections, right? But Yeah. So with that in mind, kind of going back to something you hinted at before in sort of the demography of these populations, you said there's a lot of teenagers which makes me think there's not a lot of seedlings and the adults are probably winking out more frequently. You know, so given what you just said about disturbance and and something about maybe the ecology of the species being kind of used to hurricanes and whatnot you know, is that demographic trend of having mostly teenagers kind of a good sign in a sense, because those are the ones that can then be released from whatever mechanism and then suddenly go on to become the next cohort of, of flowering reproductive individuals? Or, or am I just guessing?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. Um, and if you just look at, you know, we have, we have some some graphs and it shows the adults starting up at 11 plants and it's been going down to three plants over the past 15 years or so. And that, that graph is really scary looking, but if you look at the the young adult plants, that's been going up and up and up over time. So it's really important. It's an important lesson to look at all of the the stages of life, not just Hmm. um, the reproductive adults, because hopefully we will have some Um, Many more reproductive adults soon there. I mean, there could be there could be a few years when there aren't any on the island, but there there are more coming.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Biding our time and patience. I mean, this is a good point to bring up for any tree species, because I think we get very attracted to the old, venerable, aged looking trees and we think that's the climax of any tree's life or any forest or any really ecosystem is those old big specimens but a lot of times it's gotta you gotta look at recruitment and, and reproduction and who's next in that line because yeah the big ones as you so eloquently put it uh, tend to be the most vulnerable in many mm-hmm. instances
1: And so. it's looking at all of the the age classes is time consuming and tough and you know you get out there and there are a couple other species of palms, and when they're seedlings, they really look super similar. So you you have to kind of train your eye and crawl yeah. through the woods. And and you know when when we do our demographic monitoring, we camp out, and it's a, a multi day effort. Dang. Um,
0: I mean, so important for people to hear that it's not just as easy. Like, oh, we drive up, we go look, we go. Okay, it's there. And I, I wish. Can- <laughs> I'm like thinking back. I'm getting like shell shocked from all of the bug bites I get from the little bit of time I spend in Florida or the Southeast in general. <laughs> I can't imagine the the physical stress that you and your team must go through to even be out there monitoring, let alone digging and drilling and all the stuff you have to do on top of that. So, hats off in a big way <laughs> to the effort. You know,
1: sometimes it, it can just be heaven on earth. It, it's it's almost impossible to predict, but if the wind is right and there hasn't been a rain timed right. There's not going to be any mosquitoes, and you have this whole beautiful island to yourself, and it's just it's just amazing. And then then other times it's it's just terrible, I and mean, you have to wear a head net, and it's kind of miserable.
0: Yeah, it's all part of the territory, I guess. But <laughs> in in sort of backing up, big picture wise for this species, I mean, do we have enough data to show some trends in overall populations, at least for the United States populations? I mean, is it stable? Is it increasing? Is it what what any indication of like what's happening present day with them?
1: Yeah. um, Well, the species was, was considered completely wiped out of long key. And at one point there was, I don't know, I think no more than 17 or so on known on Elliot key. Um, And today we have a few hundred in the Florida keys, um, Elliot key and and long key combined. Everything on long key has been planted and Elliot key. We have, and and I'm not talking about big trees, I'm talking about seedlings, you know, all age (laughs) classes, there are a few hundred. So things have improved in part because of our reintroduction efforts. And in in part, maybe things weren't always as bad and maybe until we camped out there for three days, nobody (laughs) knew how many seedlings there were. Um, But uh, the story is not as bad as it seemed in the nineties and in the eighties and the nineties. So that's, it's, it seems to be going in the right direction.
0: That's good. And those are the sorts of success stories, no matter what the ratios sound like in people's heads at face value, we need to be talking about those. We need to show that even minimal efforts over time can make a difference. And that's important. Ideally, we want more than that, but funding time, you know, all the usual yeah. stuff, uh, you know, a, a success story is a success story and we need to be shouting those.
1: And I'll, I'll say with, I'm not sure if I have an example with pseudo but many of the, the species we work with, sometimes a, a private citizen who's just somebody interested in native plants can make a huge difference in our efforts. Um, just by having a plant in their collections that is rare. I have a friend named Billy who lives in Miami. and He's got all kinds of weird plants in his yard, including several very hard to find endangered species that he just got at Native Plant Society raffle table over the years. But he's been a big supplier of seeds for us for research and propagation and even reintroductions. And he, he, he has really made a difference to our program just because of the stuff he has in his yard, hmm. literally. Um, so the, the XC2 collections can be very important. And it's something I, I realize the more I do this, um, the importance of sharing our rare plants with other institutions can be one of the most important things we do.
0: Totally. I think, you know, the days of closed doors and yeah, just we get it, not you. is it, it? We can't do it. It's not good. It's not good as like a people thing, but it's also worse for the species that we care about. Yeah. And I think we need to have both, you know, conservation institutions having more open doors to conversations with individuals, but also individuals kind of, it it has to go both ways. I think that's the only way out of this, but you know, for people listening that want to learn more about pseudophoenix and the issues it faces and, and maybe keep a pulse on like what Fairchild and others are doing to kind of ensure that this species continues to do good instead of bad. Where do you recommend they go looking?
1: Hmm. There are a few, you know, if you're, if you're into like the deep dive, um, and you look in Google Google Scholar. There have been a few articles published on Pseudophoenix over the years in the, the journal Palms, um, the journal of the International Palm Society. Um, so that would be a a, a place to start. Um, I mean, you got to come to Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden.
0: <laughs> we go. have a
1: really nice collection, and we have a, a sister garden in Miami called the Montgomery Botanical Center that also specializes in palms and cycads. They also have a nice collection of pseudophoenix palms of all all different species of pseudophoenix. And yeah, I mean, if you come to Miami, you can, you can find some pseudophoenix palms growing in a <laughs> lot of uh, a lot of different museums and, and parks. They're, they're around here, which is nice.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, everyone deserves the chance to see a species like this and at least admire it and understand its story. But Jennifer, I thank you so much for telling the story and for the efforts that you and your colleagues have put in to ensure this species has a future on this planet. So, thank you so much for your time and for taking the chance to tell us all about it.
1: Well, thanks, Matt. It was fun. It was fun talking to you, and uh, thanks for reaching out to me.
0: Of course. And if people want to learn more about you, where do you recommend they 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 go looking as well?
1: Well, uh, I am on Twitter, which I think is how. I connected with you. So (laughs) I'm on Twitter at at Jen Posley, Fairchild's conservation team. We have a page dedicated to us on Fairchild's website. It's www.fairchildgarden.org forward slash conservation team. Um, So we have links to some of our publications and just some of the the stuff we do, our our seed lab, um, our reintroductions and all kinds of stuff.
0: Excellent. And I'll save everyone the trouble of having to remember that or write it down by just putting the link in the show notes. But uh, again, Jennifer, thank you you so much for your time and for all of the effort you put in for plants. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. All right. Incredible work and so many good things to say about the future for Pseudophoenix Sargentii. I thank Jennifer for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us and to tell us about all of the efforts being put forward to save this palm. There's a lot of good food for thought in there, and I can't thank her and her colleagues enough, and especially her friend Janice, who apparently is one of the main reasons this poem is doing so well in some of its reintroduction sites. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode over at indefensiveplants.com podcast, so if you want to learn more about each topic, just go check those out. If you want to support the show and ensure that it has a future please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash of plants where you can get a bunch of kickbacks. You can also pick up merch as well as a copy of my book indefense of plants and exploration into the wonder of plants wherever books are sold. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy and be good to each other. This is your host Matt signing out. Adios everyone.